<laughs> welcome, welcome back to the Cutaway. I am your co-host Max Pegues, and I'm DJ Blood on the Money, aka DJ, and I still count it. <laughs> what? We are here to bring you some global and domestic trends you might have missed in the latest news cycle, or just flat out ignored. Yeah, hopefully uh, we'll make you less disinterested in the news by hating us instead of hating being informed. And uh, at the very least, we'll find out what America's handsomest man, George Clooney, has going on. Mm. On today's pod, we'll be discussing recent U.S. actions related to the Iran deal and the laundry list of consequences that will follow. But we'll also analyze the dawn of a new era for China, quote-unquote Emperor Xi Jinping, and what this means for the rest of the world. (laughs) Emperor Jeff Sessions. Right, Emperor Jeff Sessions. (laughs) Also on today's pod, we will find out exactly what the fuck Donnie is up to. He's been very busy lately pissing all over his own shoes, and we will have to figure out how to navigate that river of shit, as well as line up the White House's legislative agenda. Later on the pod, we'll sit down with me, Emily Haney, aka DJ Fake Billionaire, Betsy DeLipgloss. Trillionaire. <laughs> Trillionaire Betsy DeLipgloss. DJ Chameleonaire Billionaire. <laughs> We're going to be talking about the consequences of rape culture and sexual assault, specifically on college campuses. Yeah, Emily's basically just going to be checking our privilege uh, for that whole segment, so be sure to uh, we'll stick around for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, stick around for more of the cutaway. And we're back. We're here with uh, the moment, Max, we've all been waiting for. Uh, we're waiting for it with bated breath. Yeah, we're here with disgraced theater czar, Emily Haney. Yes, also disgraced, public, uh, publicly disgraced former minister, Emily of Haney. Theater. Yeah, minister <laughs> minister of theater. Minister of theater, uh, Emily Haney. All right, Emily, yes, so here. what are we doing? What are we talking about? We're going to talk about Betsy DeVos for a second um, and how she has rescinded uh, some Obama-era policies on um, how schools should be treating their more vulnerable populations in the student body. Um, so she rescinded the Obama-era policy on how schools should handle cases of sexual assault mainly because she feels bad for the poor frat boys who are wrongfully accused of drugging and raping people. It's a hard knock life out there for those white guys. I know, poor things. Um, And she also wants to hold the formal process of public comment, as she said, on the matter before enforcing any new policies. So the problem that I see with this is that sexual assault on campuses has been a huge problem that universities prefer to sweep under the rug. So for instance, in this documentary called The Hunting Ground, There was a well-known football player who assaulted um, a freshman uh, college student. And uh, whenever she came forward with it, she was publicly harassed, like death threats, the whole nine. Um, And she essentially dropped out, um, was suicidal, had, uh, this had an immense effect on both her personal life, her academic life, um, and just her existence in general. So it also, This also mitigates the victim's experience, like these policies were seen as a breakthrough for victims' rights, especially considering how prevalent victim blaming is in the public discussion of rape and sexual assault. So think about like Steubenville, Ohio, whenever all the media could focus on was those uh, poor, poor boys uh, football careers and how they were ruined by this girl who came forward with the story and the video of her being assaulted by these men. So, and also think of, you know, the Stanford rape case with Brock 
Brock Turner, is that his name? Right, yeah. I mean, every single uh, headline was like Stanford swimmer Brock Turner, and it would show his like headshot from the swim team when mm -hmm. it should have been like rapist Brock Turner uh, mm -hmm. followed by his mugshot or something like that. Every, the whole profile was essentially about like his uh, his swimming accolades as opposed to like this dude got drunk and straight up raped someone and got caught. Yeah. Well, a lot of people would see this as something that's relatively harmless, that they're going to be replaced with other policies. But in the grand scheme of it, it's actually um, kind of poisoning the discussion in favor of the accused or the assailant, whatever term you want to use to describe the people who perpetrate the crime or supposedly did. She also recently rescinded 72 guidance documents outlining rights for disabled students, both mental, mentally and physically. So that was done in the Trump administration's effort to eliminate regulations that deemed superfluous. So all of these superfluous allegate or not allegations, um, like guidance documents and policies and outlines, they all serve, you know, the underprivileged, the disenfranchised on a college campus, um, particularly um, those that are disabled and those that have been raped that are in between the ages of 18 and 24. This is also rich coming from the office of the man who before even being elected open, openly mocked a reporter that had a disability. Right. So do you think a lot of this is based in the just pure social animus of these uh, historically disenfranchised groups or do you think it's a way to protect institutions that eventually grow into these uh, just like money machines? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, really, all they all they really care about is the money in their pocket. Right, certainly. And I mean, this all comes back to certainly this trend where Betsy DeVos's uh, main goal and her job as education secretary has been to undermine public education. It's been to undermine the rights of anyone who um, any demographic of people which has been historically disenfranchised. She's all about uh, making life easier for people that look and act like her mm -hmm. um, and it's less about you know embracing or not even embracing but just doing the decent humane thing for people that do not think like her yeah, yeah. well she's trying to eliminate these PR disasters or lawsuits that are uh, enacted against these very yeah, and, people. I mean it's fucking unreal she in this statement where it was I think it was a presser right after she had um, made like these overhauls to title nine mm -hmm. where she said um, you know, if everything is assault or if everything is harassment, then nothing is. I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, that's the most ludicrous, like, this most ludicrous uh, set of rationale you could possibly drag up to um, have any kind of, like, reform to, to Title IX. And not only that, but it totally undermines the notion that if you are a woman who has been assaulted or a man who's been assaulted, but in this case, if you're a woman who's been assaulted and you feel like the education secretary, who is a woman, is not in your corner, like, what possibly could inspire you to want to speak up after you've been raped? Nothing. Right? You know what I mean? Like, if you yeah. feel like a woman's not in your corner, who the fuck is? Yeah. You know? Basically. I mean, and of course, everyone should be afforded due process. I'm not contesting that at all. Um, but in my opinion, that's just... The, un the potential unfairness of the, the accused person being innocent and having to go through this like very tumultuous process of you know investigation, DNA right. testing, stuff like that. 
I mean, I don't know, that's not grounds to undo all of the work that the Obama administration did in order to put these protections in place. I mean, and not only that, but it totally depicts this administration and the people within it as like inhumane yeah. to a degree that it makes you ask like, you know, I get it. Uh, historically, anyone who subscribes to a conservative label when it comes to politics is all about like quote unquote reform, with, which just means like stripping away regulation, mm -hmm. right? But when it comes to something that seems like this is a something everyone can get behind. We want to make it to where if you are a woman who has been sexually assaulted, that you should have like steadfast protections in your corner. Like mm -hmm. there should be a system where you can go and report this. Um, and the men who perpetrate these crimes are, you know, held responsible. Mm -hmm. And to that same uh, extent, you know, these same protections should go the length to be able to say like, we're going to prevent these measures. Mm -hmm. And so, if you were a conservative, why you would want to pair these back is just fucking obscene. And not only that, but as a woman, you know, why would you want to uh, pair these sort of protections back? But to take this back to like the fundamental problem in all of this is uh, in the heat of the moment of someone being accused or someone uh, being positioned as the victim, uh, you were saying that the problem is the coverage of the uh, perpetrator mm -hmm. and not the victim. Uh, would you say that there needs to be some sort of strategic measure in place or some sort of equal treatment of both the victim and the perpetrator instead of solely focusing on the, uh, the victim? Oh, of course. I mean, um, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Or do you think it's such issue. a problem that you have to transition into, like, a really detailed analysis of the victim instead of the uh, perpetrator or how do I mean how do you manage this like this our understanding of uh, these two different people uh, when one of these cases arises like, well I think that's kind of where we're at in the discussion like with like within the community um, or the public discussion is kind of figuring out the balancing act of this right because it isn't, it isn't fair to just assume that someone who is accused is automatically guilty without proper evidence. Right. Like, I'm, I'm not contesting that by any means. And that's but, why it's sensationalized. That's why the, the that's why the coverage is uh, directed at it. Yeah, right. but I'm not saying that. I'm, well, I'm also saying that the coverage of the accused or the potential perpetrators should not automatically focus on their accolades. You know, because then right. that starts painting a picture of them you know, being a fallen hero who made a mistake, right, right, you know, right. rather than focusing on, like, the consequences of their actions. Right, it's like an attempt to humanize the perpetrator while at the same time any kind of coverage, and I mean, you see this all the time, mm -hmm. where, uh, for instance, in the case of, like, any, like, man who is some kind of star, you know, commits an act like this, and it's like, oh, well, they've done all these good things, and then the, the flip side of that coverage when they're talking about the, the woman who was attacked is like, oh, well, she goes out and drinks all the time or does this or that. I mean, it's a matter of uh, how the narrative is almost always spun. Because of, because rape is such a severe and brutal like event in itself, the attention is taken away from what it actually is. Right. So you need to uh, create all of these like swirling narratives around the central issue so that um, the issue is never improved. And I mean, and that a lot of people don't realize, who haven't personally experienced it, don't realize how pervasive the issue is. 
like until something like the Me Too campaign happens. Right. Like I'm, uh, yeah, like I'm reading here. The statistic is nearly one in five women have mm -hmm. been raped in their lifetime, mm -hmm. um, and that as particularly women of color are between three and fifteen percent more likely to be raped than white women. Which mm -hmm. those number those numbers are are fucking staggering. Mm -hmm. And also, this was something that came up during this Me Too campaign that I saw on Facebook. Um, first of all, the amount of women that I saw in my own Facebook feed who were posting this it was absolutely flooring mm -hmm. to think that like. These are all girls that I know. These some of them are people that I've known since I was in high school. Some of them are people I went to college with, you know. And it's a uh, it's hard to imagine them as a victim. It's hard mm -hmm. to imagine they've been put in that position. Obviously, mm -hmm. not by fucking choice. Mm -hmm. And um, there was also this interesting point that I saw brought up. The what this Me Too campaign doing was doing was great, you know, where it was highlighting the fact that this is, you know. Uh, Every woman you know basically has been posting this on your on your Facebook feed, but it's shifted the focus again away from men. Mm -hmm. Where like you know, want to know what? Like yeah, women are, are very extremely brave to post that like this is something they've gone through. Mm -hmm. But you know that just again show highlights women as victims instead of men as perpetrators. And that yeah. like imagine yeah. if like men who like have like put themselves in that situation where they are the ones who are the attacker had to post me too. I mean. As a man, that was like uh, very flooring to see, really. That yeah. like that, that still the mentality is like we're, you know, this is going to come out really harshly, but like over victimizing women as opposed, mm -hmm. and I mean that in sense of like uh, we're shining the light on women instead of like men, like as a man, we need to mm -hmm. fucking do better. You know, I what think I mean? it's like, like yeah. an inescapable and uh, harsh crime in itself. Yeah, that yeah. to really combat the severity of the issue um, in whatever place it has within our social fabric, you have to uh, you have to fight it with a, like a radical approach. So you have to make the uh, perpetrator front yeah. and center and really just like publicly uh, defile him like through any and yeah. all media coverage. Um, and that's just simply not being done. Right, and because I, I think that has to do again with like uh, there's this almost built into our society where it's like you don't totally want to eliminate the, this man who's perpetrated this crime, right? Mm -hmm. Because on on one hand you're like, well, like do we want to ruin this person's life? And it's like, yeah, fucking yes, <laughs> like he's just ruined at least one right. woman's life by perpetrating this heinous yeah. fucking act against a woman, mm -hmm. right? And I'll even, like, play the conservative side to this, right, where they believe in all these, like, staunch gender roles and, like, men need to be looking out for women or blah, blah, blah. It's like, if this is something that you fucking believe in, then, like, hold men accountable for exactly. this shit. Like, you know what I mean? We Don't need to be doing that. Yeah. yeah, if yeah, you can't exactly. be sent to jail for the rest of your life for it, at least you can be socially ostracized and embarrassed the rest of your life. Right, because the, the fucking incredible part about this is how many women not necessarily, like, fully recover but are able to still like lead productive lives mm -hmm. despite that you know what i mean despite the fact that they've gone through something fucking terrible like this yeah. um and this again goes back to this me too campaign that i saw sick people that i know successful women who have been the victims of sexual assault and are still like leading productive lives and have had to find a way to like overcome this it's like you know what like these women go have to endure this act and then get better to the point where they can at least live and a man just gets to walk away under our social norms but even before like there's a even before there's an actual opportunity for the, the 
you know, assault to happen, you know, women are raised aware, very aware that this is a, you know, it could very well happen to them very easily. And it probably will. And how sad is that, that, you know, like along with the birds and the bees talk, we also get, you know, like, oh, don't wear your like dress above your knees or else some right. creepy dude is going to take that as an invitation to stick his hand up there. Like, it's like a counterproductive uh, ritual performed to like place alongside the uh, productive rituals that uh, men are likely exposed to during their upbringing, like mm -hmm. right. you know, owning a gun for the first time or having uh, blood smear across your forehead. Yeah, like kill catch with their dad. Yeah. You know? And I mean, and all this goes to this speaks to what we were talking about earlier with Betsy DeVos rolling back these Title IX protections or wanting to revisit them or reform them, however you want to call it. To me, I see it as eliminating protections for women. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the previous administration you had, and I mean, we've had, we have this here uh, to, to even mention, is that, um, you know, Joe Biden's been a very, like, outspoken person about um, sexual assault on campus, right? Yeah. He's, he's been a very outspoken advocate for women. He has a and, very good track record spanning over 20 years right. in the Senate. Yeah. And not only that, but he puts the um, responsibility to men to mm -hmm. be like, don't fucking be like this. Like, yeah. be better than what, like, what you think you're supposed to be. You know what I mean? Like, women do not owe you anything. Mm -hmm. And if you are doing something with a woman that's non-consensual, non you're raping her. Yeah. He's like on video saying this mm -hmm. at a fucking mass, I don't remember what the event was. But there was it was a, recent. Right, where he's like, man, if you are with a woman and she, even if it starts consensual and then it ends up not being consensual and she wants you to stop and you don't stop, you're raping her. Yeah. Could you ever imagine Betsy DeVos getting on TV and saying that or Donald yeah. Trump getting on TV and saying that? No. But he's employing like the confrontation and, uh, you know, a assault against the, like a direct attack against the source that people need to employ. Like uh, yeah. he's not, he's, he's not up there fumbling around the issue, like trying to uh, create this holistic view um, no, he's going right for it. Right, which I think is good. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a perfect example of like, you know, a powerful white man using his platform and his privilege in a productive way, rather right. than one, you know, that's more self-serving, like right. we see a lot of other politicians do. Yeah, I mean, because honestly, I mean, and this is something that we see in politics all the time. There are certain issues that, like, regardless of your political affiliation or you know partisanship, whatever, there's an easy win from mm -hmm. a PR standpoint. And it just is mind-boggling to me that this administration keeps just like tripping over its own feet on something that should seem like an easy victory. And I mean, of course, this is like an overriding trend that I almost mention every single time we talk about uh, what this administration's legislative agenda is, is that it's to, if it has Barack Obama's name behind it, mm -hmm. they're going to fucking repeal it. Yep. You know what I mean? Which um, also makes it a, a default intentional distraction. Right. It also makes it seem very catty and like, you know, our government's being run like a middle school cafeteria. Right. Like how, how much how much pettier could it possibly yeah. fucking get? You know, like we get it, dude. Like Donald Trump didn't or uh, Barack Obama didn't invite Donald Trump to sit at the cool kids table. The cool kids who all brought their lunch, probably from like a HelloFresh subscription. Yeah, I get There's the yeah. poor kids on the outside who probably had to have supplemented lunch. But from yeah. like a, a deeper internal uh like to them that's that's negligible. Like they don't care that yeah. it looks like a Right. middle school cafeteria yeah and all of it goes to the fact that uh it's not surprising that our president appointed a woman to this position who will roll back title nine protections it's 
this is a person who on tape was like talking about sexual assault who has you know dozens of mm -hmm. um allegations you know what i mean against him of uh rape sexual assault um the one that to me is like uh, extremely disturbing is like walking into the the Miss America pageant like changing room where there are like mm -hmm. 15 year old girls in there and like he's walking around while they're getting changed like that's despicable and a man who would do that um it, obviously it's not fucking shocking that he would appoint a woman like Betsy DeVos to roll back Title IX predictions mm -hmm. and I, I she probably didn't fucking bat an eyelash um to you know to do that right yeah and I mean I don't know, just going back to, like, the statistics of it all, you know, you would think, like, after hearing this, they would be like, oh, my God, you know, like right. you said, like, this is something that we really need to focus on. But then you read stuff like 80% of female victims, like, of the 80% that they, that reported, they were raped before they turned 25. And almost half of them were raped before they were 18. Right. And for men... 28% were raped before they were 10. So there's also like this just... A lack of focus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not about, it's not about like who gets to eat at the big kids table. It's about who just gets basic like human protections. Like as a human being, like they yeah. deserve to learn. They deserve to be able to learn in an environment where they're not worried that about, you know, seeing the face of the person that, um, assaulted them in one of the most right. in one of the cruelest ways you can imagine you know yeah, i mean it's like a it's something that no one wants to talk about you know you don't yeah. want like it's a we have these words for rape you know like you know sexual assault sexual acts there's all these like uh new words for rape basically mm -hmm. um to, i think to try and like categorize different types of assault mm -hmm. and it's like dude if you're doing something if you are a man raping a man man raping a woman whatever the case may be like you're committing uh, a very fucking heinous act, and it's mm -hmm. absolutely uncomfortable to talk about. But I, like Austin, like you were bringing this up, in order to be able to actually like sort of fucking stymie this horrible part of what goes on in yeah. human culture, it's not just an American problem, but this horrible part of human nature that this is something that happens. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about it for like what it is. Right, but also to uh, like somehow create a vantage point to attack uh, the issue, you have to. Not to say that you almost have to like focus on a particular group because that's essentially unfair. But you have to understand where the where the real problem lies and where the statistics lie because yeah. you can't really. I mean, that could be another reason that uh, it's such a severe and brutal thing to approach because uh, they're not even paying attention to where the real problem is as far as uh, like how which groups or which people are most vulnerable to uh, it happening to them. Yeah, and I mean, just like the the nuances and the semiotics of rape culture and the language that we use, like in our everyday lives, that we don't realize stem from that kind of like ingrained ideal, like ideology of rape culture. That's like a whole other episode. But a lot of that stuff is really hard for people to challenge. Right. So the goal is to not force everyone to come out with their like sexual assault story um whether they were a victim or an assailant the goal is to just keep the conversation going right and to i've had it argued that you know by talking about it so much we're desensitizing people to it well in a way yeah we kind of have to desensitize ourselves a little bit just so we can talk about it right because it's, it's horrible right. like yeah. to think about this is a 
it's like a it's like a highly invasive i don't even like know the right word to describe yeah. how despicable it is you know but and like you said it's a very very difficult part of human nature to confront yeah. right and i think the only like i mean this of course is not the right fucking answer if it were i'd have like 10 nobel peace prizes but it's something that we have to talk about right mm -hmm. like yeah. um it's like you have to have people who have platforms to reach people say like look men are fucking raping women mm -hmm. and it's something that we absolutely like I get it that in this country we have a legal uh, system where you are presumed innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? And I'm all for that because the last thing that I would ever want to do is to have someone falsely imprisoned for something they didn't do. Mm -hmm. However, um, when you're you know accused of murder or you're under investigation for murder, they don't let you just walk around free while you're being investigated. Yeah. You know, it's a very violent crime. Mm -hmm. And to that same degree, Rape is a very violent crime, mm -hmm. even if it's not what you think about Law and Order SVU, or someone's beaten and held down in the street. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like spousal rape. Yeah. There, you know, this happens in relationships. Uh, this happens when people don't think it's happening, mm -hmm. and it's which is still a very like violent thing to think about because someone has to live with it afterwards. But it's also placed in a completely different environment of discussion. It's not that it deserves a politically driven initiative to resolve it, as for example, like. Uh, the AIDS epidemic, or like gerrymandering. Yeah, gerrymandering. Essentially, right. it's not anything like that. It's like uh, it's in the same category as, like you said, murdering someone. Right. I mean, it's it's absolutely like a bipartisan issue. Like mm -hmm. I said earlier, I think this is something that should be an easy fucking win for mm -hmm. legislators to get behind. Yeah. It's not. It's it's dumb, and it's going to keep being dumb for a really really long time. So we just got to put up with these dumb dumbs and do our best to not be dumb dumbs, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think like a lot of that comes down to um, we have to like hold ourselves accountable. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? This is something that we shouldn't just like uh, hold others accountable to. Like, don't yeah. be afraid to call your friends out. Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, it's as a man, it's like hard for me to talk about rape. Honestly, it's mm -hmm. like a very difficult thing to talk about because it's like uh, you have to ask yourself like, holy shit, like have I ever put myself in this position where I could be making someone sexually uncomfortable? Yeah, as a like. Honestly, as a well, man, and that's when a, you're you're taking the spirit out of someone for the rest of their life. Yeah, it's and, not like uh, yeah. it's not a matter of comfort. Right. Well, and as a man, it's like to think about that. That's not something that you know I was raised to think about mm -hmm. particularly. You know, yeah. I also, I'm, granted I wasn't like told go out and do whatever you want. Women are your possession. Mm -hmm. If anything, quite the opposite. But I think you brought this up earlier, Emily, that like this needs to be part of the birds and the bees thing, mm -hmm. where like you know men. Spoiler alert, women are not your fucking physical property, or yeah. conversely, like, you know what I mean? Don't just go, like, this happens like, you know, men are also victims of rape, you know what I mean? Regardless, yeah. like, you know, people are not your physical sexual property. You can't just do whatever you want to But them. it's just disproportionately, it affects women. Oh, yeah. Um, but what, like, know. institutional measures can you really employ to, I mean, where are we at in that? I mean, what are you going to, uh, like, split up boys and girls? in different levels of schooling or no. are you supposed to like start to disintegrate different groups that only it's just education right. yeah education is like the key to like many of the social issues that um people are facing and um, talking about um like not just talking about like the statistics of what has already happened but talking about how to recognize the signs of like you know dangerous behavior which is also kind of shitty that we have to be taught those you know like 
women are literally taught to be on the lookout for predatory behaviors. Right. And that's so, I don't know, that, that's so fucked up. Yeah, and I think to that, it's uh, it's also like the way that the narrative has been spun, right? Mm -hmm. That like mm -hmm. women are responsible for preventing rape. And yeah. I think a lot of it has to, uh, I mean, this is the way that any kind of like uh, change happens that you have to accept, accept like incremental positive uh, change, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, I'd love for there to be like radical change where we stop like hurting each other, and <laughs> uh, but that's not going to happen. So in a perfect world, right? So yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with like changing the narrative. And honestly, I mean, uh, I mean, I grew up with fairly progressive parents who were very open with me about you know what sex was and what drugs and alcohol were and things mm -hmm. that are typical taboos for for kids. Um, but still, part of the narrative for me wasn't like uh, you know. This is what consensual sex is. Right. Mm -hmm. And also, I think uh, what rape and sexual assault, you know, what constitutes that is like what, we th what, we, what I mentioned earlier, like with Law and Order SVU, you imagine someone like being beaten in the mm -hmm. street and held down and it's yeah. this like highly violent act. And of course, they it is. It could be something completely casual that, right. you know. That turns into yeah. something that's violent, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? But I mean, it is sexual violence. I mean, but that yeah, is definitely. like the yeah. blanket term for it. The sexual assault or sexual violence, I mean, it's like a degeneration of human sexuality. And so if it's that yeah. internal and that uh, profound, you have to restructure how you understand and perform masculinity or femininity. And you have to understand that both of those are completely bound by rituals. Right. And that's and, also a whole nother segment. Yeah. But. And I think from like an institutional <laughs> standpoint, too, I mean, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with, with Betsy DeVos rolling back these Title IX protections, mm -hmm. is that we were making progress on something. We were mm -hmm. letting women know that, like, look. We got your back. Right, yeah, exactly. There is a system in place to help you. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily a preventive measure, but this is a system in place for you for if this happens to you or when this happens to you, mm -hmm. you have somewhere to go. There are people in your corner that have your back. And I think from an institutional level, um, Certainly, rolling back those efforts is a fucking step in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. But we could take it a step further. Like we talked about, like Joe Biden being very open about, like, men, if you are with a woman and it starts out as consensual and then she decides she changes her mind and you keep going and you don't listen, that's rape. Mm -hmm. I think having it from coming from an institutional level, like the fucking vice president of the United States coming out and saying mm -hmm. that, I mean, if you have the, you know, uh, education secretary coming out and echoing that and taking it a step further. If you have at the local level, um, school board members, you know, mm -hmm. talking about this from an institutional yeah. level. I mean, these are, uh, <laughs> I don't think politicians should be role models for people because they're like sleaze bags. but. You need politicians who don't have anything to lose. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what yeah. Joe Biden is. Right, yeah, definitely. And also so to have the guts like to that. like stand behind uh, a stance like that, mm -hmm. that you could take is a, uh, I think that's like a step in the right direction from an institutional level, but of course it's, uh, you know, who the fuck knows like what's actually going to happen from here on out because everything is about uh, tearing down uh, our 44th president's legacy. So, yeah. well, but a, but a closing thought I have, <laughs> and it's from um, a White House report done for the Council on Women and Girls um, under the Obama administration. So they talk about changing the culture and how uh, sexual assault is pervasive because our culture, our culture still allows it to persist. According to the experts, violence prevention can't just focus on the perpetrators, 
and the survivors. It has to involve everyone. And in order to put an end to this violence, we as a nation must see it for what it is, a crime, not a misunderstanding, not a private matter, not anyone's right or any woman's fault. And bystanders must be taught and emboldened to step in and stop it. And we can only stem the tide of violence if we all do our part. And with that, thank you very much for having me today. Very, very well put from the Obama administration. I, I miss <laughs> hearing <laughs> cogent thoughts yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming from the White House. But Emily, thank you so much for being here with us today. And uh, Thanks, guys. this was a lot of fun having an extra person in the studio with It'll us. It'll be a common fixture. Yes, definitely. Because there, there are certain things that I would gladly talk about, but as a white guy, probably shouldn't. You just need a buffer. I'm here to be that buffer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> stick around. Uh, we have more of the cutaway after this brief break. Over the break, Max uh, has killed both of our producers. Yeah, by we, that I mean um, both the film adaptation and theatrical adaptation of Mel Brooks' famous play, <laughs> The Producers. Yeah, Matthew Broderick is dead, and I killed him. Right. Yeah. Also, during the break, I was playing with the fly swatter that I used over the microphone, yeah. and now and, it's gone. We don't know where. Now it it's gone. It's I think it's uh, disintegrated. Whoops. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> so today, uh, first, we're going to lead off on the podcast by discussing. Um, China and their role as a global player economically and on many other fronts. So Austin, why don't you uh, why don't you take us into that? All right. So we're talking about China because not only uh, domestically within China, but internationally, there's a seemingly a shift in power or the balance of power rather. Uh, so within China, Xi Jinping has ruled for the past five years, and every five years within China, uh, there is a new communist party conference and so to set the stage to give uh, some information leading up to our analysis of the conference itself we're starting to understand from a global perspective that xi jinping is becoming or he's on the verge of becoming the most powerful man in the world and uh for various reasons so first and foremost um, he has completely purged his own communist party um, and the army. So he's replacing who he thinks are operators of dissidents or um, candidates that would pose some opposition uh, with allies or those that are too politically weak to uh, represent their own their own initiatives. Um, oh, how, how magnanimous of Mr. Xi. Right, yeah. <laughs> But in uh, Chinese media, his uh, excuse for this is that they are uh, symbols of corruption in the right, it's political system. Basically like a, some great spin. Right, yeah, exactly. So, um, so both within the political party, but also within uh, China's military. But aside from that, um, China has grown to be the second largest trade partner of the U.S. and the EU, and that in itself is uh, monumental. For a variety of, of reasons, for their foreign investment with different continents, uh, specifically Africa, but also their internal uh, tech sectors that are also deeply intertwined with their tech consumer culture and economy. So they've basically allowed themselves to progress economically while seeing while carrying out plans to improve their military. 
So China has a much more powerful armed forces than it had five years ago when Xi Jinping uh, began his first term. Um, you have artificial islands throughout the South China Sea, which is a, ge I mean, geographically, it's one of the more important uh, areas in the world. Um, and so these artificial islands act as military bases. Uh, there have also been military drills that have been conduct conducted in uh, both the Baltic and Mediterranean seas. Um, and you also have their first overseas military base. Uh, in where, Austin? You uh, gotta say it. I didn't think we would do this. Um, Djibouti. Yeah, they're the building military Africa. bases in your booty. In the booty. In Africa's ass. <laughs> yeah. China's putting ballistic missiles up Africa's ass. Right. Can this make it into the podcast? I hope so. I, I hope this makes it into the final mix. But, uh... <laughs> the final mix. The uh, final mix down. <laughs> this me, Africa. Yeah. It, it also, it's worth noting, too, um, that the China building these uh, artificial, like, barrier islands almost to serve as military bases is something they've been doing for years. This is, uh... Well, for uh, resorts. Yeah, no, but they, not for military base. Yeah, but they've been doing it for military bases using basically the exact same uh, technology, using the exact same uh, plans. This is something I, at least that I've read that oh, uh, Xi Jinping cool. is, you know, has been like a key part so, of his so like, military strategy. No, yeah, I mean, very efficient, not a very creative guy. Basically, uh, oh, yeah. we can talk about that later too, about how he's similar to Mao without a. Uh, having to be like Mao. Just to harp on that point, um, during this party conference, uh, his speech was three hours long. No potty break. Wow. <laughs> maybe he's related to Kim Jong-un, because I'm pretty sure or one of the rumors about... God. Maybe, because I'm pretty sure one of the rumors about Kim Jong-un is that he doesn't poop. <laughs> yeah. he, he, uh, he doesn't poop at all, and uh, because he works so hard that... His body just burns up the poo. No, he uses a Korean witchcraft to transition uh, uh, right, yeah. fecal operations to yeah. Dennis Rodman. And you all out there should know that <laughs> he transfers his fecal matter to Dennis Rodman. You should know that my source for this information about Kim Jong-un came directly out of a very thought-provoking documentary. People magazine. <laughs> at the movie The Interview, starring oh, right. James Franco oh, yeah, and yeah. Seth Rogen, a groundbreaking uh, documentary about... Uh, their dear leader, Kim Jong. <laughs> right. But what's also groundbreaking is this segment. So uh, on the other hand, uh, China has grown militaristically, economically in some regards, uh, but they also face immense inequality uh, amongst their classes um, and statistically a lack of economic growth while their middle class has been wanting better housing, better education, healthcare, and freedom uh, of speech, um, but also on the internet as well. Um, but most importantly, the bottom line here is uh, Xi's power relies on repression, and when you repress 1.4 billion people, uh, there are severe consequences, but we haven't seen them. Right, it's like living in a fucking matchstick house coated in gasoline. Yeah. It's only a matter of time before the whole fucking thing backfires, and like you said, with what 1.4 billion people, yeah. and with one of the largest economies in the world that's you know rapidly growing, um, what the what the fuck does that look like if it falls apart? It's that uh, it's, it's a very terrifying yeah. uh, thing to think about. Doctor, 
Caligari's worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah exactly. That uh, everyone should watch that movie. Yeah, great movie. Yeah, very fantastic movie. <laughs> Uh, so to summarize Xi's first five years, it's important to mention foreign investment because that's sort of been the way in which the Chinese economy has been able to juggle both a communist base, uh, like political system, economic system, right, yeah. yeah, but also um, hints or uh, I guess different factions of capitalistic intent it's like flirting with capitalism right yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so um and the main way they do that is through foreign investment in africa so globally they're the fourth largest investor in africa um and africa to them is sort of a testing grounds for improving the reputation of chinese companies um, and they do so by as we were mentioning implementing uh, a capitalist uh, framework so to do that, they undermine labor laws and environmental laws and standards put in place by Western governments that are not really subject to any penalty or any sanction because it's China. What would you possibly do? Um, so these projects are kind of just seen as a uh, unofficial form of soft power to legitimize um, China as a global leader or the emerging global leader. Um, and over time, this form of investment has really sort of allowed private firms that once didn't have uh, the freedom of sort of becoming autonomous in different areas of the world to start to begin to do that. Um, so they're not receiving direct support from the Chinese government or subject to restrictions from either the Chinese federal system or Chinese centralized banks, um, but they, this is kind of formed by uh, having these weak links between other parties and people within the government and the banking system. Right. It, it's a, it sort of like harkens back to what we were saying about how it's like uh, this like wash between, you know, what you think of with Maoist communism and trying to somewhat participate in like western capitalism yeah and, yeah. yeah which leads to like a, a very like interesting outcome yeah so it, it kind of yields this uh, divergent system of different economic entities uh in the same way where you saw uh beijing and hong kong historically butting heads competing with two separate ideologies but also living under the same Chinese roof uh, economically, but you're but it's basically just that on a micro level. Um, so, I'd also like to mention that the Chinese economy uh, has more potential than actual uh, reality uh, in its growth right now. Um, it can really grow beyond any economic expectation in the sense that. Uh, it's 1.4 billion people are a perfect testing ground or pool of analysis for like an emerging technology sector and a uh, consumer culture of anything tech related. Um, and namely with uh, Huawei, which is China's biggest uh, cell phone provider, telecom market leader, um, it's sort of taking the form and shape of an Apple. 
uh, and not the fruit and bees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's see, so you think that we're talking about phones and computers? We're talking about produce, people. Exactly. <laughs> get your get yeah, your get shit your, together. Get your head out of your ass. Get your head out of your fucking ass. We're talking about apples here. All right. right. Everyone, wake the fuck up. We're talking about produce, not yeah. technology. So uh, Huawei has recently put. Uh, Golden Delicious apples in their phones, <laughs> which many believe is like it, that's you know, how you get four G incorporating hardware that uh, <laughs> Apple puts in its own products. But really, the Chinese are just putting fruit into their phones. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, um, this is something that's very important because you know we talk about how phones can give you cancer, but if you put fruit and vegetables into your yeah. phone, it blocks the waves that give you brain cancer. So yeah. you heard it here first. So people go out, buy the apple juice, pour it all over your <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Go out, buy a massive Persian cucumber, and beat your phone with the, <laughs> with the cucumber, and send us videos of you doing it, please, for the love of God. <laughs> um, so the Chinese smartphone maker, makers aren't uh, necessarily the tech leaders in the sense that it uh, allows the Chinese economy to grow beyond um, what people had thought. Uh, but it, nonetheless, like we were saying, it does uh, kind of represent ways in which innovation has taken place within Chinese markets, namely through their products, you know, including different uh, forms of hardware and products that uh, Apple, for example, does not have or implement. Um, but the real money here is in their in internet companies. Uh, and that's only in large part because of Beijing's, what is called Beijing's Great Firewall, which is a set of restrictions that block access to US sites, um, so, you know, such as Facebook, Twitter, Google. Um, and this indirectly allows for um, the markets to be more profitable because it, they're actually restrictive. Uh, right. So it's there, like there's they're no like, running, you know, free range of possibility. It's a tight vacuum of. Uh, right. They're like operating within the restrictions, and therefore, like any small modicum of progress that these internet providers or these internet companies make, it's like, oh my god, look at this massive piece of like online innovation. But it's like, no, your rules are so fucking strict that you get like one small victory, and that acts as like a. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They're counting that as innovation, right? Yeah. Um, but in some ways, by keeping it airtight, uh, you know, this very um, confined ecosystem of ideas and innovation, it kind of produces advancement at a faster rate because everything is far more regulated incrementally. Like regulated along the yeah. way, you know? yeah, yeah. which is the literally the exact exact opposite of what we do in the United yeah, States, yeah, where it's yeah. like, here's a great fucking idea, let's go nuts with it, and then we're gonna worry about regulating it once people start dying from it. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, a great example of this would be Alibaba, which is uh, tattooed on Max's. Yeah, not a uh, a Persian sultan. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we are we are not talking about a sultan. Right. Or, or, or a Persian this cucumber. Is, yeah, this is, yeah. No, we're not talking about Persian cucumbers or sultans, and we're also not talking about the leader of Saudi Arabia, <laughs> yeah. Alibaba. Um, so Alibaba has been a great example of uh, this progress. Well, fundamentally, because it protects the uh, the firewall itself, protects the, the company from um, U.S. competition. It kind of restrains 
uh, like we were saying, anybody to leave the pack. Um, but Alibaba's, you know, it it integrates all these different technologies and ways of distributing a good, but also combines that with uh, you know a social media service like Twitter, uh, like a paying system like PayPal, and like uh, an online shopping service like Amazon. And so by doing that, it's become questionably the world's largest retailer. Um, but many people have seen Alibaba as like the world's largest uh, competitor to Amazon. To Amazon, right. Um, so if you have all of those things in place, like a, you know, a multifaceted uh, tour de force, it kind of allows you to implement uh, different forms of robotics or distribution systems uh, to get the product to people faster and more efficiently in ways that Amazon really hasn't mastered. Right. Um, to complement that, you have Baidu, which is China's Google, uh, and because of it being subject to the same firewall, they've invested in AI in the same way that Google does, but because they kind of have to adhere to Chinese federal law and uh, economic restrictions, they're probably going to implement AI in a much more, uh, on, on, on a vast scale, and in many different ways, because there's no freedom of speech. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's not like you're going to have AI running your fucking house. It's going to be like the police are going to be AI making sure right, that yeah. you're not I mean, like subverting their government. Happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the best part about all of these internet companies is that they provide a great example for uh, many to believe that China could exceed expectations um, from an economic standpoint. So they don't really have, these companies themselves don't really have to rely on uh, the price of the market share. So like basically um, making their products dirt cheap, um, they can now focus on making their products cool and innovative. Right, um, which has almost been like a, like a centerpiece of any kind of like Chinese manufacturing is that yeah. it, they, have, they have zero interest in making a product that costs as much as it possibly could. It's literally just about making like whatever the best product they can yeah. for this price, which is, uh, you know, something that in America we've always like made fun of where it's like, Oh, you're going to go buy this Chinese knockoff. Right, and it's yeah. like, or you now it's coming to the point where they're making computers and phones and technology systems that are far superior to what we're <laughs> making yeah, on yeah. the side of the world. Or, or whatever. That time's finally here, oddly yeah. enough. Um, so yeah, I mean, these internet giants and smartphone <clears throat> makers, they're sort of the uh, cousins of Silicon Valley giants. Kissing cousins of yeah, Silicon Valley. Kissing cousins over in Silicon Valley. That's right. No, actually, if it were going to be kissing cousins, it would be in the West Virginia Valley. <laughs> yeah. In the Coal Valley. Yeah. Kissing coal. <laughs> so, I mean, none of this is possible with without the existence of Apple. Kiss my colon and suck cold. my ball. Yeah. <laughs> That's on the uh, West Virginia license plate, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, it's, it has to be. Uh, <laughs> so, so, all, so all of this is going into uh, past, this past week's Chinese Communist Party's 19th Party Congress, um, which is basically sort of like a inauguration ceremony or um, it's like their version of like the peaceful exchange of power that we have in this country, except it's a, 
right. not. Yeah. <laughs> Except not. Yeah, it's like uh, Trump's speech on the uh, Washington Mall. Uh, so these uh, congressional <laughs> events, like, like we said, occur every five years. Um, but what's unique about this particular uh, party congress is that Xi Jinping has completely reshuffled uh, the Chinese political system and he's elevated his status uh, beyond anyone since Chairman Mao Zedong. Done so by sort of obtaining over time all of these different titles and they could be related to anything from national security to foreign affairs. Uh, and so piece by piece he's become the unofficial chairman, but in Mandarin, his title is president. But uh, so since 2013, he's imprisoned 1.3 million politicians to get to this point. Million. 1.3 million right. people and who are his uh, opponents. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can, yeah. can call him that. It's like, a, it's like a page right out of the Maoist playbook. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he's reshaped the Communist Party, but what has he done for China's debt or anything to spur like a vast economic growth across the board for China's multiple classes um, and anything to address inequality within China? Uh, he hasn't. Um, so sort of he has these projects that are sort of designed to Incre like upgrade his reputation going in, into this uh, party congress. So he has the like one the, belt. Right, the, like the foreign investment that we sort of talked right, about. Yeah. This is all kind of ties into that. Right, because it looks good because it's outside of China. Right. And uh, with a fancy name like One Belt, One Road. Yeah, One Belt, One Road. Uh, this, this project that we mentioned in an earlier podcast, uh, but it's this massive infrastructure project that spans from China to one-third of all nations in the world. Uh, but it's been in the news recently because it's impacted uh, U.S. foreign policy in relation to Afghanistan. Um, but, yeah, he also has that in this um, initiative to become the global leader in climate change initiative. So it, uh, any of you listeners out there who thought global warming was a Chinese hoax... Spoiler alert, it still is. Yeah, yeah it still is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so compare this to five years ago when Xi Jinping uh, first started his term, the shift in ideology has completely taken place. So five years ago, uh, the, the Congress uh, had planned to double GDP by 2020, which is uh, absolutely egregious to think about. Um, but now it's the opposite. You're seeing uh, tech sectors being boosted rather than like the traditional heavy industry of, you know, steel production or uh, chemicals or clothing or consumer electronics. It kind of creates this uh, result of Xi prioritizing uh, the development of information and the development of a communications framework for the Chinese federal government and uh, the Chinese central banking system moving forward. Right, and this is like a, what we sort of alluded to in the beginning of this segment is that the Communist Party in China, if you look at the evolution of it, especially under Xi, is that, um, you know, like in name, it's this Communist Party, which we very closely associate in general, and of course in China with, you know, Mao, um, but really uh, they're, you know, practicing these capitalist techniques or principles, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
in order to like tackle some of these issues within their own country with where as it relates to um you know uh, innovation in the tech sector cybersecurity, these types of things um it's you know we, we sort of mentioned this uh between the two of us that this is like a uh this is the means to their Maoist end still. Yeah, yeah. Is it's that the completion of a machine. Right, exactly. That, you know, whereas, uh, you know, Mao's sort of uh, end result was to have China as the global leader, in, uh, you know what I mean, over the United States, you know, to have you know, China as number one. You know, his goal was to do that through, you know, like Maoist communism. And whereas Xi Jinping is like, well, that's all well and good, and I'm leading Mao's Communist Party, basically. Um, but we're using this Western system to be able to achieve our own end. Right, yeah, it's multifaceted, and uh, that's what a lot of people don't really understand. Um, but from a information or data perspective, this is sort of like the, the step that makes China as a society seem like uh, something from Brave New World or like something right. from... <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, it's using this deep integration of the internet and big data and artificial intelligence to... Big daddy? Yeah, big... <laughs> actually... Big daddy! Uh, there's been a internet um, phenomenon across China uh, that uses the name uh, Big Daddy Xi. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not joking, you can look this up. We but, can Google Big Daddy Xi. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, the, the coinage has been um, restricted. Like you can't use it on the internet. Oh, this is one of those uh, things in China that's restricted by the the Great Firewall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, here. So <laughs> that's actually funny. The Guardian, uh, no less, wrote an article entitled "Big Daddy Xi No More Chinese President Nickname Nixed." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, there was this. Uh... There's a genre of Big Daddy Xi themed songs. Yeah, yeah. There is. <laughs> This is actually fucking hysterical. So basically what this is, is like you, you recognize these like uh, parody Psychologist. Twitter accounts, yeah. except it's totally permeated like <laughs> Chinese internet culture. Like this is not like a uh, a Tumblr page. Right, this yeah. is like all of China's internet. Yeah, like yeah. hundreds of millions of people mocking the president by saying Big Daddy G. Right. There was a uh, phone uh, game you could download. And the game was uh, centered around uh, people clapping after he gave the speech. And, you know, like, however you touched the screen or manipulated certain aspects of the game, you won points or whatever. Um, and that game was downloaded uh, over a billion times. So, yeah, I mean, um, in large part, this deep integration of information has... Uh, it's done for economic reasons, but it also uh, allows the rest of the world to really see China having a real economy. I know. Stop calling the president Big Daddy G. Just to, the nickname is Big Daddy G or G Dada. G Dada. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> so be on the lookout for some new interesting DJ and, names. Uh, and Xi Jinping's <laughs> pop career. Yeah. Maybe that's what he'll do next. Uh, that's probably what it is. You know what? That's why the uh, the Chinese government and the army shut down this nickname is because once President Xi leaves politics, he leaves public office, he's going to try to be one of those, like, you know, J-pop, K-pop <laughs> singers, and he wanted to be Xi Dada. Right. And now people are, like, buying up all of his domain names, and he's, he's mad. He wants the Twitter handle, at Xi Dada, and now he can't have it.
His first album would be called The Firewall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Baby, my wallet's on fire. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, yeah. So moving forward, I mean, what can we really expect? Um, it's going to be interesting to see how Chinese leaders uh, will grapple with these new cybersecurity laws, how they'll defer in any way with what uh, Xi wants to do, um, especially when the Chinese middle class wants freedoms of all different kinds. Um, and really how, you know, how critical will this information infrastructure be um, and how well will it, will it manage uh, like different trading uh, within the international community or really serve as a, uh, a way to foster a non-tariff uh, trading barrier with the rest of the world. Um, so it, what it means for like any sort of uh, influx of data or personal data, we will have to wait and see. But. Right, this is going to be one of those things where we mentioned before that you know uh, China has been relatively successful at um, regulating these things as they go, and um, it's likely that they'll take that approach um, yeah. to to these new like innovations within their economy. Right. Um, but all of this is possible because of uh, Xi. Almost all everything he can to implement this uh, cult of personality that Zadong. Uh, did so well at doing right so expect more out of uh out of big daddy g out of g dada right, -da -da. <laughs> uh so maybe it has like some relation to the uh dada art movement in uh, romania wow. before world war ii who who knew that uh xi jinping was such an art lover i certainly didn't well i don't i mean the rest of the world really hasn't given Given him credit, you know. So. Right, exactly. You know, he's a misunderstood guy. Yeah. G Dada hangs out with the Babadook. They're both very misunderstood yeah. souls. And Alibaba. And Alibaba. They're all right. Uh, the Sultan Alibaba, the Babadook, and G Dada are going to start the world's biggest pop supergroup, and they're going to take the world by storm. Yeah. By red storm. But yeah, that's going to be the name of their album, the, the Big Red Storm. <laughs> And their first single is going to be called The Firewall. Yeah, it's going to be a virus. <laughs> yeah, it's going to go viral. Yeah. All right, everybody, uh, stick around. After this brief break, we're going to come back and be talking about what's going on on the home front. Uh, so over the break, we captured a live audio recording of the conversation over the phone that Donald Trump and uh, Rex Tillerson right, this had. Is a, this is a cutaway exclusive right. that you're hearing it here hours first. finding this on the, 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 deep, the web. deep web. The deep, we are in touch with Julian Assange. Um, so here's the live recording of uh, the phone conversation when Rex Tillerson called Donald Trump a, a fucking moron. Austin hit it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you heard it here first on the cutaway. This is the live footage of their conversation immediately following the interview where Tillerson called Trump a moron. Yeah. Austin, why don't we go ahead and play that clip for him one more time? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, this is a this is a cutaway exclusive. You you heard it here first in slow mo. And that was in slow mo too. Yeah, but we also have uh, reliable information that Rex Tillerson was just bathing in crude oil while <laughs> while he was uh, making that phone call. He's a aficionado of crude oil phone sex. 
Moderns. Yes, and also he's supposedly coming out with his own brand of crude oil suppositories. So <laughs> if you ever wanted to have crude oil up your ass, now you've got yeah, it. By the barrel. Yeah, by the barrel. Um, so now we've uh, seen what's going on around, around the world, and we're going to talk about um, the White House legislative calendar as it stands for right now. Um, these uh, upcoming months, we're going to see the GOP likely banging their heads against the wall, um, trying to fight for the typical types of, you know, quote unquote reforms that the GOP cares about um, and that they care about giving tax breaks to their billionaire mega donors um, so they can uh, stay in office and, you know, dismantle health care. Mega boners. Yeah, mega boners. <laughs> and uh, dismantling health care on the behalf of their uh, benefactors. And, um, you know, basically they want a budget that allows for cutting social welfare programs while increasing defense spending. This is uh, basically the uh, the GOP mantra. Yeah. And the Senate um, passed a budget proposal that the House, you know, is likely it's going to glide through the House. Um, and essentially this budget and tax reform are currently the top priorities um, for the GOP and for Donnie. Um, and so what, what does this look like? Um, essentially what the White House is doing is uh, branding um, tax cuts for the wealthy as tax reform. Um, they've been trying to spin it as the same type of comprehensive tax reform that Reagan accomplished during his term, his terms as president. Um, but really what this is, is just uh, tax cuts. Um, and ultimately what, we'll, what it will do is put a bigger burden on the middle and working classes to pay for this tax cut for the 1%. Um, because as many economists have you know, got on the record saying, um, you absolutely cannot have tax cuts without cutting taxes for the wealthiest people since they're the only ones that have <laughs> money to pay massive amounts of right. taxes. Um, essentially for what these, what brackets are being brought down, the tax brackets for earners between uh, 418 and $999,000 um, will be brought down and tax cuts for million dollar earners, um, right now largely still up in the air, um, but they're trying to bring this rate down from 39.6% to 35%, which is a very drastic cut um, for the top earners in this country. And uh, might I just add that the same exact thing is happening in France right now with uh, Emmanuel Macron's legislation this past week. So the same thing that he's pretty much repealing uh, and reversing what uh, Francois Hollande did during his presidency. So great. The same thing that's happening here, right? It's like a lot of like a this like whole populist right. So thing is sweeping you, the entire world. Yeah. So if you can attract a billionaire, then they will bring the industry into uh, your country and offer more jobs. I think that's the idea. It's the idea, but yeah, <laughs> like rarely does that happen. But that's uh, basically what what the GOP is doing instead of focusing on some sort of uh, revenue neutral budget or tax cuts. Um, and this is something that I actually think Donald Trump has internalized. You know, this is not just talking points for him is that he actually does want to cut taxes for the donor class because that would directly impact him. Of course, we don't have any hard and fast evidence of that because he's the first president to not follow precedent and release his, uh, you know, tax returns. Um, but overall, the GOP is looking to cut $1.5 trillion in tax revenue with this latest reform, um, which essentially means that what this budget and round of tax cuts will do is increase 
the deficit, which is, this is another aspect where um, the GOP is going to have infighting. You know, Donald Trump's been tweeting about how there's this like unmatched unity within the GOP right now. And in doing so, there are conservatives who have said, I absolutely will not vote for a budget and tax cuts that increase the national debt. These are like your Rand Paul's, Ted Cruz's. And so they're going to have the same problem that they did during um, health care. Also, you have Lindsey Graham actually sort of looking out for the Republican Party and going out and saying, you know, without this tax reform legislation, there is no Trump presidency. Right, yeah. There is no Republican identity without this tax reform. Right, exactly. And not only that, but like taxes have been like a landmark thing for the GOP for decades. Right. And and so just like they had with the health care fight, um, they're going to be the, the various factions within the GOP that they just absolutely cannot get together. Um, but this huge cut in, in tax revenue, um, like I said, is going to likely raise the dash, national debt significantly. Um, and it will put a greater strain on middle and working classes because they're the ones who pay for these tax cuts. Um, they're the only other, you know, uh, tax bracket that can afford to, to shoulder the burden when you're taking, um, when you're giving tax cuts to the wealthy. Um, and, you know, there's problems within this, uh, this idea of how they're going to pass tax reform, because like I said, you know, there are factions within the GOP that absolutely will not vote for a budget and tax cuts um, that will increase national debt. Um, and, you know, this is a, this goes against like an ideological principle that these conservatives have where they fight for the middle class. Um, it, it's, I mean, you know, they, they fight for middle class, like white families really who, you know, the very fifties and sixties idea, you know, leave it to beaver kind of right, family yeah. that they think still exists that that's their ideological principle. They're right. going to fight for them. They're banking on the American people and the middle class to still have this like obsession with commerce where, uh, the national story is I, right. Uh, yeah. Like myself. Um, and you know, together we live this like American dream together. Uh, but in reality, our form of commerce is a, like a hot mess. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and um, you know, we're not so, uh, systematic as we are like trying to embrace the poetry of the emergence of the entrepreneur right. and people just simply don't have that idea anymore. Right. Exactly. And, and it's, a. Uh... And that's like Donald Trump's big thing is that he's all about like self-starters. Right. He's not about like large corporations and like, I get it. It's very romantic to think that like, oh, I'm going to give tax breaks and then people are going to start businesses. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> or like, and that's a, it's an incredible thing is I recently was engaged in a debate on Facebook, shocker, um, <laughs> about uh, with one of my high school friends who is a business owner and um he's all for these tax breaks because for small businesses like him you know he actually gets to keep more money right. if he's not paying in taxes which is sounds great in theory and he owns a small business and he's a person that he doesn't reinvest the money in his own company exactly you know he realized that he has more money to maybe spruce up his company but he also doesn't employ a whole lot of people he's essentially like a sole proprietor and um we were having this debate about you know, the flaws in trickle-down economics. I mean, it sounds fucking great. These wealthy people get to keep more of their money and therefore get to act as angel investors or they get to reinvest in their own company right. and improve um, wages for their workers or they get to hire more people when in reality, you let wealthy people hoard more of their money and that's what they do. Right. They just keep more of their money to be able to provide for themselves and their kids and, or they spread it around by investing in 
other wealthy companies that they know are going to provide them a large return on their investment, which like, yeah, that's great, but not everyone can do that. Yeah. I mean, the best case scenario for uh, this happening, or will the reform being enacted and the reality of the situation will be, um, you know, we're, we're allowed these nitty gritty concerns that, uh, you know, we barely have enough money to uh, become a millionaire or billionaire, um, but it could happen overnight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's like the whole thing with like trying to brand these tax cuts is that it's like, they're trying to get you excited about something that has been proven right. for like 20 yeah. years doesn't work. <laughs> they're like, this time it's really going to fucking work. Like yep. we're going to pass these tax cuts and tomorrow they're going to be 60 new billionaires yeah. in the United States. But it's like, spoiler alert. No, <laughs> like it's absolutely fucking unreal. So what, what do these tax cuts actually look like? Or what do some of them look like? Um, this comes in, in ways of like certain things are like uh, quote unquote loopholes or deductions are going to be eliminated and certain things are supposed to help. A lot of this is trying to simplify the tax code so that it's, you know, when you're filing your taxes, it's one page, um, which sounds great. Uh, <laughs> but unfortunately with the way that, you know, this country works, I don't know if that's necessarily possible, but one of the, one of the things this, uh, this tax reform proposes to do is to eliminate certain state and local deductions. Um, analysts indicate that over the next decade that this would save um, $1.3 trillion um, in taxes. Uh, but essentially what this does is states that have higher, um, you know, local or state level taxes are typically blue states. And there are, um, you know, wealthy, um, Democrats that um, are making these contributions. And so, um, you know, they're the ones who benefit from this tax break, that they're able to make these deductions. Right. Um, and really what this does is provides the appearance of big cuts without actually, you know, doing anything. Um, a lot of this is, um, you know, very, it's unpopular politically and bad policy, which is almost like that could be the slogan for the GOP. Bad politics, shittier policy. Right. You know well, what I mean? It's going to enter con I mean, we're going to talk about this later with the Iran deal, but it's going to enter Congress and nothing's going to happen because Congress fucking hates Trump. Right. Yeah, exactly. And they're even getting to the point now where like outspoken Republicans, critics of Donald Trump are saying like, you know, we all fucking hate this guy, but if we don't do something, we're not going to get any right. meaningful legislation passed. Like you mentioned this with Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, uh, the senator from Maine also recently came out and said this too, like, you know, if we don't back Trump on something, we're going to get nothing done. We're going to get killed in the midterm. We're going to get killed in, um, in 2020, which like my fingers are crossed right now. They're like, yeah, absolutely fucking do that. <laughs> um, another, uh, Another proposition by this recent uh, tax reform would be to reduce contributions allowed to the 401k. Um, Austin, maybe you want to talk about this uh, a little bit. Right. So it's basically this part of the uh, reform is sort of disguised as, yes, uh, you will in the long run, you will have more money in your 401k because it'll just be stretched out longer over time. Uh, but the reality of the situation is that you can't really put nearly nearly as much as you would like to into your 401k every year so um, there's more taxable income on the table uh, but there's some some element of the reform where it's like pre-taxed 
it's the this so this provision in the new tax code or whatever you want to call it um again another example of you know unpopular and bad policy so essentially what this would do is cap or reduce the cap from eighteen thousand dollars annually that you're currently allowed to put into your 401k before taxes down to 2400 um and in theory really i mean uh this is another thing that i've sort of read that it's gonna you know uh really hurt the middle class especially but um overall this is just another big like uh fuck you <laughs> to anyone that wants to make any sort of uh untaxed contribution into their 401k right yeah um so that kind of also relates to another element of the reform in that uh, reducing the taxable amount um, on investment capital uh, will, be, will be a part of the reform. So this straight up benefits the uh, billionaires or multimillionaires that work at hedge funds that basically get rich off of uh, investments um, that may or may not even exist. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's like, uh, essentially what they're saying is like, if you are wealthy enough to make certain investments that yield high returns, like we're just going to let you keep that money. And it kind of coincides with their trickle down theory where they think like, Oh, people are making these large investments, making money. And what they do is they take that money and invest it in businesses or whatever, act as angel investors. That's like a big thing. But it doesn't with, matter if the business fails or not. These people still make the money because they've invested right. off of, uh, imaginary money. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but uh, these are investments, like I said, that only they can make, right? Like if you're an average person, you do not have the capital to be able to see these large returns um, to the point where um, you're just already rich, getting insanely richer off of investments. And Austin, you hit on this too, is that this is like the all the hedge funders and Wall Street guys who uh, benefit um, from, who will benefit from this. Um, they will uh, eventually just make more money than they already have. Right, yeah. That, like, or double, almost double the amount of money that they're making because of uh, the taxable amount. Right, yeah. So these people, <laughs> right, exactly. So like they're the only ones who would benefit. Like yeah. hedge fund guys, Wall Street guys who have the, uh, really like the knowledge to make these investments and then are actually have the capital to do it. Um, you know, they're the ones that are actually going to see the benefit from this. It has absolutely nothing to do with providing for the middle class whatsoever. Yeah, so the same economic principles that emerged from the 80s are only getting uh, supported. Right, yeah. So they're still trying to, like, beat their head against this fucking brick wall that trickle-down somehow actually works. Um, and, and, then, this is, and then his favorite part of the reform. Right, yeah. Like, this is, like, the, the flagship part of tax reform for Donald Trump is repealing the estate tax. Um, this directly benefits the wealthiest people. Um, in fact, I think I read an article recently that this would benefit something like only less than 10,000 people in the United States. You know, right. like ultimately like the idea, I get it, simplifying the tax code and allowing for working people to keep more of their money, that's great. Like I'm all for that. But this sort of reform or this sort of tax break abs does absolutely nothing to benefit regular people. Because when you're talking about regular people like leaving money to other people, they're leaving like small amounts of money. When you think about repealing the estate tax, um, these are people who leave like multi-billion dollar mm -hmm. estates to their kids. 
and who and now this is going to result in you know tens if not hundreds of billion dollars of lost revenue for the United States um, by repealing this estate tax. Right. So if the reduction of uh, the taxable amount on someone making money each year off of invisible money, aka investment capital, right? Uh, if that wasn't enough, the money that you accumulate off of that crime uh, will not be taxed. Right. And a lot of this too, and this is like, uh, this is really shady shit too, because a lot of how people benefit from, will benefit from avoiding this estate tax is that they set up these estates or trust funds and they're called, it's like fluid or liquid or some kind of trust fund where you create this estate for your children or for whomever the beneficiary is. But you, right, but you still act as the, um, whatever the signatory is for it, whatever that term is. I'm not a, I'm not a finance person, but I understand a little bit about it. I, in fact, I like was calling some of my old like fraternity brothers who work for uh, at Deutsche um, as an analyst, and they were putting me in touch with other accountants and people that understood the estate tax. And essentially how this works is these wealthy people who set up, you know, multi-million, multi-billion dollar estates um, for their kids, for their beneficiaries, they set it up where you can still pull money or funds out of this, uh, out of your estate and use them. So now when the estate tax is repealed, these people will be able to maintain these fluid trusts, whatever the exact name for it is, and take this money out tax-free. And it's... Um, and it doesn't, uh, like the applicable tax rates of whatever time period are... Uh, like they're mixed, not subject right. to, the, yeah, they're not subject to those rates. Alone. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's funny because a lot of the, like a lot of Donald Trump's like fiscal populism talks about like, oh, we're going to bring this money from off seas back into the United States. We're going to make it to where all these rich people can stop hiding their money um, overseas. He's right. Now they'll be able to do it in their own country. They're, they're not going to have to go anywhere. They can just like set up their estates here in the United States and uh, and do whatever they want. Yeah, these uh, multi-billionaires who've had uh, bank accounts in uh, Panama. Right now they're uh, going to be back in New York, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Panama City, Florida. Yeah, exactly. Now, yeah, you're going to see all these banks uh, sprout up in PCV. Um, but and it's the most interesting thing to me about reading about the estate tax and finding out more about the estate tax is that Donald Trump and other economists who subscribe to his bullshit talk about how this benefits people like farmers who set up yes. estates with Absolutely you know absurd. both money and ass and other assets, meaning like property, mm -hmm. um, into their into their estate. And so what this would allow for is farmers to be able to leave their estate, meaning their actual farm and all the other assets that go along with their farm, to their children, and their children won't be bearing this large um, financial burden when inheriting their family's estate. And it's like, how fucking, like, yeah, I get it. Right? Like, don't get me wrong. That's great. The farmers do something. Literally, they shoulder the fucking food burden for the United States and for like many other countries in the world. That's great. I'm all for helping them out. However, you cannot get on fucking TV and have one of your surrogates go on Fox Business and be like, oh, we're revealing the estate tax for farmers. We're just trying to help farmers out. It's like this law revealing this tax is going to help somewhere around like 6,000, I believe, individuals in the United States. And if it's helping 6,000 people out of the tens of millions of people that live in, in the United States, obviously it's helping wealthy people and maybe it'll help a dozen farmers. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's how I can sell it. Right. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. And 
this is a uh, you know all just like nothing there's absolutely zero substance to what these reforms mean because it does absolutely nothing for middle class it does absolutely nothing for working people um the small little concessions that it's making to masquerade as benefiting the middle class are all just nothing and it's a uh, it's interesting we have this note in here about um they're banking on the fact that normal everyday people Trump's base, even people outside the base, do not understand how money works. They don't understand how what commerce is. They don't understand how finance works. They don't understand how fiscal policy works. So they hear tax cuts, and because they hear it on Fox News and they read it on Breitbart every single fucking day about how like tax cuts mean you get to keep more money. Yeah, tax cuts mean that the rich people get to keep more money, right. and you are still basically going to be paying the exact same thing. It might it might uh, allow you to keep an extra. Sarah Huckabee Sanders went on TV. There's this big thing going around Twitter um, a week or so ago about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, like, oh, the average family is going to be able to um, increase or be able to keep an extra $4,000 a year. And that's because she doesn't understand the difference between mean and median. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, uh, if anything, it will benefit uh, the upper middle class. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's going to be like a slim pickings because right. that's a fading uh, demographic. Um, but let's shift into talking about uh, this big fuck up that's, that could likely lead to a war with Iran right. and Trump decertifying the Iran deal. So uh, if punning to Congress is basically what's going to happen with the tax reform, uh, Trump has given us a precursor uh, for that happening with the Iran deal or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So this was an Obama era piece of legislation uh, that was implemented to mask the fact that he was giving uh, more money to the Saudis and more weapons to the Saudis than ever before. And, and that's not really what it is. Right. right. <laughs> that's what, that's what uh, people who watch Fox News think. Yeah. He's, right. that people think that like, oh, Obama gave $150 billion to Iran, which is like, spoiler alert, that was their money already. Yeah, like, so th this is like a... a an open door for Iran and the Iranian people to kind of get noticed on an international scale. So, um, granted, yes, it could be renegotiated, uh, and it, in fact, it already has a, a, a new form of the uh, deal was proposed in July, but Trump simply wants to decertify it. And so he's throwing it to Congress, uh, who can't fucking stand him, and uh, who are also a group of people he's openly sabotaging uh, uh, publicly each week by sending Bannon to uh, endorse these candidates far right. and wide. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, it's also in a way to a way to avoid like actual diplomacy with Iran. Right. Because it like it galls Donald Trump to think that the Iranians like that we are not the key player in the Middle East right now, Iran is. Right. Like it galls and, him to think that. And if there's any nation or any group of people in the Middle East that you absolutely should never fuck with, it's the Iranians. It's Iran, right. And not only that, but leading up to um, Donald Trump decertifying this Iran deal, he, all of Iran's top diplomats came out and said, if Donald Trump decertifies this deal and then the U.S. Congress passes sanctions on Iran, we view that as an act of war. Like, we yeah, will automatically yeah. take that as you are moving to start fucking with us and you're going to start a preemptive war with us and right. we're ready for that if you pass any round of sanctions, which and the fact that Congress he is it, talking about doing. 
Right. <laughs> the fact that he made it a big deal uh, publicly, um, giving it this release and media attention, um, it, it gives like the, a new ground for Iran um, to become even more infuriated with how they've been treated by the U.S. mainly. Because this is a multinational deal. Uh, many European um, diplomats don't want any part of decertifying or repealing the deal. Right. But also, the deal was essentially made to begin with because Rouhani was this uh, new face of Iran and a almost like an invitation for the rest of the world to view Iranians as this progressive and uh, just basically expressive group of people that are secure and safe relative to the nations that are around it. Right, but exactly. that only is the case because uh, President Rouhani is almost like a puppet leader in Iran. You have the Revolutionary Guard who are the most powerful entity within uh, Iranian government or their parliament, um, even more powerful than the Ayatollah, which is their religious, spiritual right. uh, leader. Um, and Revolutionary Guard sort of emerged from um, the Ahmadinejad presidency by basically giving the Ahmadinejad family and his uh, conspirators money and uh, concessions. But Revolutionary Guard, uh, They've recently been given new boats, new weapons, new planes uh, from Russia. They're helping the Qataris out um, and basically doing everything to act against any forces coming from the Saudis or the Israelis. But right. And ultimately, the what, what this could lead us to in terms of like a, an actual like direct military conflict with Iran is that people just act like Barack Obama is the one that cooked up this deal in his head. Barack Obama is the one that enacted this deal and that it was held together with uh, spit. When in reality, it was a multilateral deal with backing from the EU, right. with you know uh, deep negotiations between the United States and Iran. Like This was not some deal that was thrown together. Yeah. The whole point of this deal was to ensure that Iran is not developing nuclear weapons. Um, because like Austin mentioned, they are essentially controlled by the Revolutionary Guard, which is um, a terrorist group. which is identified uh, by the international uh, defense community as a terrorist group. Right. So, but they, I mean, that's based off of them giving Hezbollah weapons and training money and, and, and kind of uh, you know, I mean, if you sanction Iran, why not sanction them against their possession of ICBMs or recently arming Hezbollah to the teeth in Lebanon, giving. Uh, Qataris money who indirectly fund uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, basically have them at their uh, knees because there are currently uh, many Qataris being held hostage in Iran. But uh, that's a completely different story. Uh, but yeah, I mean, why would you act towards these Iran sanctions when you haven't even sanctioned Russia, uh, which Trump was supposed to do by October 1st, which was the deadline? So if you can't do that, um, how will anything happen related to any piece of diplomacy that needs to be revised? Uh, that it's beyond me how that would actually happen. Right. As if his, uh, you know, diplomatic authority hadn't already been undermined by all of his bullshit that he engages in on a week-to-week -week basis. Right. But if you're unable to, or you're not 
unable, if you are unwilling to enact sanctions against Russia, how could you possibly yeah. be taken seriously to enact sanctions against Iran? And if this weren't an even bigger smack in the face, Tillerson came out recently and was saying, uh, he was ordering uh, the Iranians who helped uh, fight ISIS with us in Iraq uh, to go back home. Because, right. that, I mean, obviously, historically, that's a point of contention with any Iranian forces being in, being in Iraq. Uh, however, um, how do you possibly tell the most, you know, this very advanced military force from uh, now our rivals to go home when they've defeated quickly over time uh, the most dangerous ter terrorist organization in the world? Right. And, the, and if not the wealthiest. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, that's how you, it's kind of this uh, debate, you know, is the Revolutionary Guard who owns almost all of Iran's oil and, you know, willingly accepts weapons and concessions from Russia on a monthly basis. I mean, how do you possibly negotiate with these people? And it's really hard to do. Right, exactly. And I mean, the big takeaway from this in talking about the Iran deal is understanding the fact that just because our... Uh, <laughs> just because uh, Barack Obama, you know, uh, enacted this deal, who that just everything that he did infuriated Trump's base. But people assume that it was a bad deal because Donald Trump gets on TV, TV and is like, "Don't believe me, I'm the best negotiator. This is a bad deal." When in reality, this was a uh, you know multilaterally decided upon um, deal that actually Iran, to a large extent, was complying with, and not only that, but. Basically, what this does, if you take nothing away from <laughs> figuring out why this is so important that it stays in place, it gives us an opportunity to keep an eye on Iran for 10 years to see exactly what the fuck their nuclear intentions are. Right. Um, and especially if they're going to comply with this deal largely, um, it'd be really fucking stupid to to do away with it. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, the, the deal was proposed to begin with because it would tap into the largely untapped uh, market of Iran. I mean, the... the I think some crazy stat, like 70% of Iranians are under 35. And if you watch the news and see any piece related to Iran and that demographic, they're incredibly educated, incredibly knowledgeable about Western culture and civilization. Right. Uh, and when you look at other countries around Iran, it's night and day. Right. And it, it, it pays for the United States to have a somewhat stable relationship with Iran. Of course. And this deal was a way to do that because it's a, treating them relatively humanely when it comes to nuclear weapons um, and nuclear pro proliferation. And now Donald Trump wants right. to piss all over that. And historically, the U.S. has fucked with Iran so many times that it's like I can completely understand if they're ramping up forces in Yemen or forces in Afghanistan or forces in... Well, uh, uh, quite literally, uh, Lebanon, I would not be surprised if those conflicts got much worse. Right. So before we uh, before we wrap things up, there have been a, a wave of um, elections um, throughout Europe um, and also the uh, Catalonian independence of rather their fight for independence um, in Spain. And so. This is interesting because this uh, whole uh, dispute, I guess you could call it, between um, Catalonia and Spain has been really uh, sort of flying under the radar for years in the, in the international narrative. Um, but uh, the Catalan lawmakers have recently um, 
really just defied Madrid and voted to uh, declare their own independence, um, desp uh, despite the fact that the Spanish president um, essentially, you know, are not recognizing it and, if anything, are imposing a tighter grip on, yeah. on Catalonia. So the, the EU and um, the European Commission ha are completely backing Mariano Rajoy here. So who's I mean, the Spanish president? Right, yeah. So historically, uh, Catalonia has always been the wealthier region in Spain that has brought uh, brought in, you know, a lot of commerce throughout history. Uh, and so they're kind of, the, Catalonia is taking advantage of uh, certain groups of separatists within the Catalan parliament um, that have planned to declare independence uh, multiple times over history, but now they're arguing that a disputed referendum gave them a mandate to split from Spain, uh, which is, I mean, they're just exploiting a vulnerability in uh, the net, like the attitudes and climate across Europe. So um, Rajoy has given has been given no other chance uh, to really. <laughs> Uh, compromise in any way. So he's using this Article 155 uh, of the Spanish Constitution, which has never been used since Franco, um, to overthrow the Catalan president, uh, Carlos Puigdemont. Right, which like puts them at further odds with Catalonia. And like I said, it's like uh, imposing a tighter grip on, on, this, uh, on this group right. of people. So it'll split, it'll, I mean, Puigdemont's party is not big enough in Catalonia to uh, instigate this uh, separatist movement. He's actually been forced to uh, join up with another party to form this coalition. So I think the revote um, and whatever Rajoy has planned for the future is a way to exploit that fact. You know, it, his movement is not large enough in Catalonia to actually declare independence. And so, like I said, the EU Council president and even the French foreign minister have supported Madrid, and this is going to be uh, it's going to be in the news for a while. Absolutely, and I think not only that, but it's likely going to lead to like violence within yeah, the civil within guard. Spain. The yeah. civil guard will come into Catalonia and take over. Right. And there have also been uh, two elections recently. Um, there's been a Czech and Austrian election, both of which have resulted, um, rather not resulted, but we've seen like a wave of populism sweeping the yeah. global uh, political community, and that has uh, in reached into this Czech election and it's the Austrian election. Of the story, but yeah, so uh, Andre Babich, which is the, he's like a Czech version of Trump. So, and actually that's what he's uh, publicized as being in, in Czech media. But his Anno party has secured 29% of uh, Czech par parliament. So it's just short of a majority, but um, Anno stands against immigration and corruption in mainstream parties. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Czech politicians are, Putin's puppets, and even right. uh, very prestigious Czech media outlets are highly influenced by uh, Russian propaganda. So, um, you know, a centrist economic pro program drew voters away from the parties that dominated Czech politics from the end of communism, um, and this is kind of echo echoing a uh, swing to like an anti-system or anti-immigrant um, the, the Steve Bannon wing is taking right. over uh, Czechoslovakia. This happened in France with uh, France with Front National and also recently with the AFD right. in, in Germany. But yeah, uh, Babish poses a different kind of threat, though. It's not like an ideological reshaping of uh, Czech policy or Czech parliament. 
um, but it's kind of exposing these weak institutions that are um, failing to restrain Putin's uh, right the oligarchy coming invasion. over and yeah. Yeah, yeah, Putin's invasion. Yeah, uh, but also in in Austria we have a thirty one year old Wunderwutzi. Yeah, the, the one a whiz kid, uh, Sebastian Kurz. Uh, he was elected the Chancellor of Austria. He was also the, the previous uh, foreign minister. 31 years old, yeah. unreal. Yeah. Um, he's of the Austrian People's Party, which is a Christian Democrat uh, or just Christian Democratic Party, uh, similar to Merkel's in Germany. But he's already uh, formed a coalition with the Freedom Party of Austria, which is replete with. Uh, Nazi sympathizers. Right, exactly. so, it go. sounds like exactly what you think it is. <laughs> yeah. Like if you heard there's a freedom party in the United States, imagine what that would look like and yep. transfer that. And to they've Austria. historically been uh, a highly questionable party in Austria. <laughs> right. Um, well, that about wraps wraps things up for this uh, for this episode of the Cutaway. Unfortunately, um, it's been a, a sadder week for American politics. Um, <laughs> we have many things uh, brewing here on the home front. Um, that uh, we'll likely have to make a special episode for, um, including yeah, these indictments from Bob Mueller um, will likely be made public um, by Monday, October 30th. Um, personally, I can't wait for that. Uh, I was, uh, you know, spending some time, some quality time with my girlfriend last night, and we were watching some TV, and I was scrolling through Twitter, and was getting so excited that I was running around the apartment chanting that the Russian indictments are about to finally start being handed and down. And drumroll, who will be indicted tomorrow, Max? Okay, Max's predictions for indictments. I think that we're going to see indictments against General Flynn, Paul Manafort, and actually, this is a this is my wild card uh, prediction: is that they're going to be made against Roger Stone, oh, okay. who, well, the, the, the associate of Paul Manafort, who he used to run the lobbying organization with, and Roger Stone's been an insider with Donald Trump since his early political days, like. Uh, in the in the eighties, well, like the clear culprit here is uh, Michael Flynn first, right? First definitely, and, and I think that's going to be the the big one that you see first is Michael Flynn. In fact, I saw a tweet earlier today that was like, if you want to play a funny prank on uh, General Flynn, if you are one of his neighbors, go on his door and knock on it really hard at or like speak, six a.m. Turkish outside of his front door, and he'll like come like rushing to the door. <laughs> yeah, because he thinks that he's going to be uh, saved and picked up and rushed <laughs> off to Turkey. I'd rather be in a Turkish prison, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, uh, we're going to continue to deal with this shitstorm of, uh, of Donald Trump's presidency. But fortunately, we can, we can hang in there because our Lord and Savior, George Clooney, is on our side because he's suffering with us. Um, his, uh, his recent uh, directorial coup at the helm of the film Suburbia has yielded negative critical reviews, Austin. Which is the um, uh, sequel to Disturbia. Right, yeah, exactly. Rihanna actually stars in this movie. Yeah. Um, I, a lot of it, I actually haven't seen this movie yet, um, unfortunately, because it doesn't play at the Art House Theater, so I'm not going to go. But <laughs> um, likely due to the, his outspokenness against Donald Trump, a lot of the reviews I've read about it are talking about how it reflects his politics. Um, but I agree with uh, George Clooney's politics, so that's okay. Um, however, that didn't stop our, our Lord Clooney from Lord hosting Clooney. A, a pretty uh, kick-ass looking Halloween party uh, with the help of his awesome yeah, accomplished she? wife. Um, she was like a disco diva. And I highly, highly recommend um, looking up pictures from this party, which I did earlier today before we came in <laughs> to record this segment. Times. Yeah, multiple times. It's actually awesome. So one of his 
one of his business partners in this tequila company that he owns. And this is actually part of the outro is uh, George Clooney, unlike our president, actually has built a billion dollar company out of his uh, Casa Amigos uh, tequila company. And one of his business partners, who's one of his close friends, is uh, Offset from Amigos. <laughs> yeah, Offset. Um, is married to, I don't, who's, uh, like, it's like Heather Locklear or something oh. like that. Yeah. And so it's probably not what it is, regardless. She was at, she was in attendance of this uh, of this party, and basically the, it makes just for awesome pictures because of course it does. Like why wouldn't it? And also it was not Heather Lock. It's Cindy Crawford. Uh -oh. One of his business partners uh, is married to Cindy Crawford, which you know, congratulations. I guess that's what, I guess that's what happens <laughs> when you're really wealthy. Um, but please uh, please be sure to join us for our next episode. And uh, while you're waiting for that release. Uh, be sure to subscribe to The Cutaway on iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcast by searching for The Cutaway. And please be sure to leave us a uh, either a one or a five-star review on iTunes. But it also, cannot be uh, anything other than a one or a five. Right. It'll be deleted if it's not. Yeah. Uh, but also, Garnet Media Group, which is the landing site for all of... And our benefactor. Right. All of uh, Student Media's podcasts here at University of South Carolina. So, right, yeah, you can find our little profile on there and in links. Facebook. It, right. Go like, to Facebook. My yeah, God. go on Facebook for the love of God. We are constantly posting new uh, little header photos that go with our recent episodes. And if nothing else, it makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we you never know. We might just turn this podcast into a love fest for Heather Locklear and my love for George Clooney. Right. Um, so please be sure. To, uh, to like and follow our page on Facebook and subscribe to our iTunes. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, next episode we'll have another piece with Emily Haney and we'll talk about the indictments. Def yeah, definitely. I look, I very much look forward to uh, talking about the indictments. In fact, I'm like just sweating thinking about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and we definitely look forward to having Emily back on the pod. That was, that was a whole lot of fun this week to, to yeah, have her on. Yeah. Um, right. It was definitely an interesting dynamic. So with that, um, we got the outro music going, so look forward to our next episode, and au revoir, suckers. Yeah. Goodbye.